Have you watched A Wild Wild Country documentary on Netflix about a controversial guru building a utopian city in the Oregon desert? Have you ever wondered how can you quantum leap the integration of the four aspects of self – physical, emotional, intellectual, and spiritual – just within six and a half days? Do you know what is the structure of your own ego and how can you heal and leverage it to your greatest advantage? What do these three questions have in common? Let's find out! Our guest today has behind-the-scene insights into all three topics. Volker Kron is an accomplished psychotherapist, an Enneagram expert, and a director of the Hoffman Institute in Singapore and Australia. He is also a former Osha Sanyasin and earlier in his life was a resident of the Wild Wild Country community for three to five years during its most controversial times. So, get yourself a cup of tea, open your mind, and get ready for a deep dive into the truth. Welcome to the Timeless Teachings Podcast. My name is Jana, and I'm your guide into the world of spirituality, mysticism, and consciousness. We release new episodes every Monday in the form of interviews, teachings, and meditations. Stay tuned, and let's dive deep. Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. And I would love to continue our conversation about you and singing. Oh, so tell singing. me about that. <laughs> Tell me yeah. about the Russian choir in Australia. <laughs> no, the Russian choir, look, a friend of mine, they started, um, he's running the Mala Music Festival, and he wanted to have some a Russian choir for the music festival, and it was too expensive, so he asked another friend to put a choir together. And there we're now 28 men, and we've been singing probably five to six years now. And as I mentioned to you before, we were even invited to sing on the Red Square in Moscow for the 75-year anniversary of the victory of the fascist. So, however, COVID hit, and so we didn't do that. But they asked us then to actually produce a, a Zoom concert in that sense. And we sang the song, The Tanks Rattling Over the Field of uh, Gogliatha or something like that. Um, my, 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 my Russian is not so good. <laughs> The Russian is amazing enough if you can sing songs, okay? And this is, well, this is we, a great we, start. There's none of us who speak actually Russian. So we only sing these songs, for, learn it phonetically. And we have a repertoire of about 14 songs. And however, this went completely viral and uh, was on all the news in Russia. And so then it came back to Australia. And so then we became also famous here in Australia. And uh, Australian Story did it. This, uh, we were voted the most, uh, the, the, the favorite story of Australian stories in 2020. Because, and, and, and the wonderful thing is also then a Russian choir who could sing much better than us, really. <laughs> they sang the song uh, Waltzing Matilda. Mm. They did it, however, with the Russian fervor, you know, and it was, uh, so it was a beautiful intercultural exchange. 
So wow, Volker, I must say, I, I just learned something new about you. Like I know you for years. <laughs> I didn't even know you have this connection to Russia, which is my home, right? So mm, that's a yeah. beautiful way to start our conversation today. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, and our 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 choir is called the Dusty Eskies. And obviously it's a wordplay on Dostoyevsky, but it's a dusty and an esky is a especially an Australian cool box, you know. So and that that men usually take to the beach to have their their beer nice I, I love i love someone has really great sense of humor so <laughs> i love this is a very original name and i'm definitely going to check it out even though i'm sure from all my other friends who think it is always better in the live performance but right now i'm sure we can find something on the internet so i'm looking yeah. forward to that yeah i'll have a look at that my wife basically says what's not to like 28 furry men singing their heart out <laughs> yes <laughs> And with that, with your creative expression as one of those 28 hairy men who are singing the heart out, <laughs> how did you actually got into what you're doing right now with the work that you are helping people in healing and consciousness and psychology, right? So mm -hmm. let's, let's zoom in and bring some, some music to that. All right. So, look, I I guess I, well, originally I'm from Germany. I came to Australia at 26 after I finished my studies and I studied naturopathy and philosophy and then had to actually escape the German army because I <laughs> I didn't really want to go be uh, conscript, uh, conscripted. So, I decided for two years to go abroad and I got stuck in Australia. And I met Bob Hoffman because I was in my 20s very much a seeker after truth. So I traveled through India and did a whole bunch of group and psychotherapy, did the yoga and did all the breath work and everything. And did eventually, you also stay at the Osha Ashram? Would it be correct? Yes, I stayed there as well. I had for how long? <laughs> I, was, I was with them about three, five years. Somehow. And was it during the time when Osha was still there or not anymore? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. He was there. He was there, yes. Okay. So I'm, I'm sorry to just interrupt you here, but that's interesting because I have never met him in, uh, mm -hmm. in real life, right? So I think he was gone way mm. when I was too young. Yeah. And I was just always personally fascinated with his teachings. And I know there's a lot of controversy story around who he was as a man and what he was teaching and how he was living his life. And I think we all probably watched the Netflix documentary about it, the Wild Wild Country, I think, right? Yeah, well, so, I, actually, which, matter of fact, I was, I was there when that was happening. Oh, so it was God, a very okay. interesting time. Okay. So, and I remember when we were watching this with my husband, he at the end turned to me and said, well, now you know how not to do things. So we learned that. So, of course, there were some amazing lessons, but also so there were some things that didn't go that well. However, I think Asha as a man and as a teacher, he was a genius in what he was doing and the way how he was doing. So that's why my question for you, because you met him and you have been there. So tell me a little bit, how, what, is, what is your feeling and understanding of him as a person and how was your experience there? Everybody has their own personal experience around it, right? And uh he was a genius and he had a quite an amazing, what you would call shakti, charisma, if you like it. So 
being around him gave you a feeling of being elated and very alert. So it could also be said that it may be just all projections that you project your own animus or anima onto him, like the your own spirit. And and of course, he always said, don't look at the moon, or don't look at my finger, look at the moon. So basically finding yourself. Now, a lot of people there, as people are, they mistake certain teachings you know so mm -hmm. and so there was also when there's a lot of light there's also a lot of darkness of course and uh and i think also on one level it, it was a, a microcosmos of of the world that we were living in because we are all living in patriarchal structures and uh and so even though he put a few people in charge to to run the administration he didn't probably take enough notice about how they were doing things and whether it was actually an alignment and at the end of the day he probably also came more from a place and that's because he was a tantric teacher mm -hmm. he basically was very allowing it's just whatever is your impulses go along with it find the expression but stay alert and aware in it now the alertness and the awareness aspect sometimes was missing and <laughs> i sometimes also had thought in, uh, in in retrospect that a lot of sannyasins of that time had no mind mixed up with mindlessness mm -hmm. and what so, is the difference the difference in that sense, no mind is where we can come more into our being state and be basically present. Mindless, however, means that we are not actually engaging our own intelligence, our more positive intellect to also make meaning. Because at the end of the day, no one can actually create meaning or cre help us to create a meaningful life. It's something that we have to find within ourselves. And so I guess, however, it was a very important initiatory experience and I wouldn't regret any of it, even the bad stuff there. Okay, it, tell me about the bad side. Now you got me really <laughs> curious. And I'm sorry if we're just kind of putting you in a spotlight with that right away. But that's just how we do things here. I want you in advance, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I guess one of the part, I mean, I personally was a little bit more on the periphery at that particular time. So I was mainly interested in psychotherapy. I went in there also to study deep connective tissue massage. And at those days, they had actually were renowned for probably being the most avant-garde and the most interesting and the most had the most depths the way they actually approached deep connective tissue massage and the transformation that can take place in that. So I was very much involved in just uh, that side of things. The administration, I thought it was very strange. I also really thought that they were engaging in double think. I mean, George Orwell would have had, uh, was, a, was a wonderful showcase for him, for his book, 1984. And, there, and, and it was also the way uh, it was run that people had to surrender. It, it, in that sense, Osho was also very much following um, the traditional guru perspective, which is mm -hmm, still mm -hmm. on one level, a patriarchal structure mm -hmm. where you have to surrender to another person. However, it comes from a perspective that the that basically the guru is the person who has the know and who can guide you through certain spiritual experiences. And I think on one level, he has given uh, some incredible 
teaching there. I mean, he was an incredibly well-read person. I mean, he had at that stage probably the biggest library in northern on the northern wow. hemisphere. He was uh, he was a speed reader. He would read about would devour five books a day. So he was highly educated. He was a philosopher, a uh, professor of philosophy in Delhi before he reached so called uh, so called enlightenment so these are more the 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 incredible experience and i had some wonderful experience of deep meditation and i could also see that even though there was a lot of shadow there i could somehow zoom out from that mm-hmm. and uh, and still recognize it was still a mystery school despite all the politics that went on in the background. Yes, yes, yes. There's so, something very important that you said here, which I feel we need to highlight for people who are listening because it's important mm-hmm. to understand. When there is a lot of light, there's also a lot of darkness, right? Yeah. You said it several times already now. Mm-hmm. And this is also very beautifully illustrates this concept of duality because we live in a dualistic world. Our world is dual. And so we have good and bad. And I just feel for people who are on the path, for the seekers, for whatever it is that they're seeking for. So, but usually we go for some kind of level of self-realization and inner peace, right? I mean, we try to figure out basically to come home to ourselves. This is what we want fundamentally. And uh, it is just very important to keep that how would you call it? It's not an analytical mind, but what kind of mind is that when you go into, the, let's say, a mystical school, right? Or you go mm-hmm. in a particular teaching, especially if it is led by a very charismatic teacher. And we know in the history have been many like that. Yeah. And right. And usually this person would have a tremendous light within them. But then just because the way how the samsara is created. And you could say how our reality is created. It is inevitable that every incredible light teacher would always have a very strong dark side, either to him or herself personally, or it will be somehow created in their surroundings. So by other people or maybe community. So it will always come up. Mm-hmm. And that's why I al- I've always felt myself, it's very important to use and you as a psychotherapist maybe can help me again, which mind is it that we are using, right? To use that part of our minds that can understand the difference between the two and, and see what you need to see in terms of learning and goodness and teachings and know how to implement it into your own life and into your own system. And at the same time, have enough compassion for the teacher and also for other people, right? Who, what you said, might be mindless while mm-hmm. doing something and not discount actually the the mysticism and the beauty in it. Do you see what I mean here? Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I'm just reflecting a little bit how to best answer that. So I guess what you talk about too was in my own journey. So I spent a little bit of time, but I also then started to realize that there was, I had as an individual, I had to make, or let's put it that way, from my own intrinsic value system, there were certain things that I just couldn't agree with. Mm-hmm. And and I think it also had a lot to do with, uh, and there's a duo there, once again, a uh, 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 a paradox there. There's the balance because on one level, I also did understand that uh, that it's about the disidentification from our own ego system, mm-hmm. our ego structure, and the way I would define our ego structure is the interplay between our emotional self and our intellect. So these are the conditioned part, and this is obviously more concepts that came more out of the Hoffman process. Mm-hmm. So that's why I also realized just to give myself over to meditation, it didn't really help me to run a life which I was 
in, in, in congruence with. So particularly also the way um, man-woman relationships were handled there. A lot How of the was that handled? <laughs> <laughs> Now you opened a Pandora box. <laughs> yeah. So you also have to understand all of that came out of the 70s, the 60s, mm. the sexual mm -hmm. revolution. The, the people were, were coming more out of much stricter patriarchal structures, much more control as a child as well in their upbringing, where there was usually much clearer authority figures there and do's and don'ts, mainly don'ts. And so there was much more restriction in regards to that. And with the pill and all of that, particularly also women felt a great sense of liberation because they could also explore their own sexuality mm. without having to be fearful about About getting pregnant mm -hmm. and so I guess however that a lot of the time was then also how shall I say it misinterpreted maybe <laughs> just say it as it is yes I'm listening <laughs> misinterpreted <laughs> misinterpreted where somehow uh, it was not so much a liberation for women but it was mainly a liberation for men from any form of commitments and responsibility Mm -hmm. And so I guess also around, however, there was a lot of exploration around our own sexuality and, um, at that time in, in Pune and Rasheshpuram there. So there was a great level of freedom, which was as a young person, wonderful. And you, you were able to actually go much more direct in regards to your own attraction that you may have felt towards another person. And, and you didn't have to go through all the rigmaroles of, of the flirting and coming and and putting your foot forward and the whole courting business It was more much, streamlined was much more streamlined <laughs> <laughs> much more direct however i guess women at that particular time i think in retrospect and i spoke with a lot of friends about mine they also felt that they gave too much away so mm -hmm. uh, there was also a part within themselves where they felt they had to they had to still please the needs of the men too mm -hmm. much mm -hmm. or try to also even to some extent be in competition with the sexual desire of the men. So, so there was a lot of promiscuity there and a lot of heartbreak that goes along with it. And, and I guess for myself, I, and, and I must say it probably was one of the seminal experiences where I was probably a little bit laissez-faire around all of that. And yet, I eventually, I fell in love. And I would also say that had a lot to do with all the psychotherapeutic work and the emotional opening that actually occurred there, that it also opened up my heart. I fell in love with somebody who then, however, cheated on me. Damn! Damn! <laughs> <laughs> do it! <laughs> So, but, and it broke my heart. And so I became very clear to me, however, out of that whole experience. And I must say, that's where a lot of the meditation techniques of, uh, from Osho, particularly, for example, the dynamic meditation really helped me to process that, mm -hmm. process my own inner rage against the self or rage against the other. And so to come to a place of greater peacefulness and the realization that what I wanted to have is actually somebody who I love and who loved me back. So okay. there needs to be an exchange in that. So, and uh, that was a really important 
shift how to do that was another story. And so that's where I then came across actually Bob Hoffman and I did the Hoffman process. And what what was so brilliant about the Hoffman process is that it actually helped us to or helps you to create an understanding about your interpersonal relationship and also your own reactivity and how we project mother and father onto everybody that we meet. Of course. Particularly of at the course. beginning, right? Of course. Mm. Thank you for being very honest. And I just would like to add a little bit more fire than that, okay? <laughs> If you're okay right. with this. <laughs> Because I know a little bit, I mean, a little bit about your life. And I just want to put everything, I guess, in the perspective, given that you are already on this topic, you kind of started that. Mm -hmm. So you did mention that Osha was a tantric teacher and, right? And I do know that you yourself, I guess, were at some point, it, studying this and trying to understand what it is. Mm -hmm. So that person that you fall in love, was that somehow in relation to the tantric studies and practices? Oh, yes, definitely. I mean, we were both tantricus. And okay. uh, and I think that's uh, an, an important part, also the way we came together. Mm -hmm. Because uh, it was for both of us very clear that our relationship was based upon wanting to grow, wanting to become more expanded in consciousness. And uh, that was probably the, the foundation of our come to, coming together. So where we can individuate, but also individuate together and to help each other to, to, to become more mature, to become more expanded in consciousness in that sense. However, at the end, it didn't work. Right? So no, no, no. In, in a, or did it? No, no, that's basically, that's Jeanette. That's my wife now. So. Oh, that's your wife. Okay, okay, okay. So I got messed up with the women you loved. Okay. No, 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 that, that so was wife? before, yes. before okay. Jeanette. Okay, you know? okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. And, and I think that's also partly, particularly if you talk about relationships, I think there's uh, something to be said where a lot of people in relationships sometimes make a mistake. They always think it's me and the other. Mm -hmm. It's me and you. But there's a third element in the two relationship, and that's actually the relationship. And it's actually good for people to also reflect upon what does this relationship stand for? Mm -hmm. So in business, we would develop a mission statement and vision and get clear about what are the values and all of that. And yet we fail sometimes to do that also in regards to our personal relationships. And so that's been, that's where in my, my work that I do with yes. couples. Okay. So tell a little bit more about that, right? So for people also who are listening right now and they're like, oh my God, I want to know what my relationship is about. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand, of course, ideally, I mean, and I have done Hoffman process, which I think is phenomenal, and I will highly recommend it to everyone. In fact, I have sent many of my students to you personally, and also yeah. to some other people all over the world if they felt they want to do this in their native language, right? Because Hoffman Institute has different branches all over the world. So, I mean, I definitely recommend, I think it's a very powerful way to look at everything, especially if you want to do it now and fast, not mm. over the period of 10 years, right? Yeah. So yeah. that's, so that's, and in our very fast paced society and life, I think it is really important to do that. And so at the same time, people who are listening and they are maybe in the relationship or maybe they are reflecting on the past relationship and they think, how could I have done differently to have maybe a different outcome? So when you say that there is you, there is me in this relationship, how do we look at that? How we look at that? Well, well, one, What I usually do with couples, I get them to reflect upon what are their personal intrinsic values, 
Mm-hmm. So what's important for them? Love. For some people, it's honesty. For some people, it's truth. For some people, it's also explore, uh, support, merging, fusing with the other person, that kind of stuff. For some people, it's procreation, having children, mm-hmm. uh, be, uh, creating a good environment for the next generation to, uh, to flourish in. So, And that's good to recognize that as a couple. So what is it actually that we are, as a couple, as a partnership, making a stand for in regards to our values? Because it makes it then easier for them to, when there is conflict, and let's face it, in all relationships, there is conflict, there's a power struggle usually, and to be able to resolve that, it's then good to have a mission or at least a value statement where we then get clear about how we want to conduct our our relating with mm-hmm. one so where somebody says, or oh, if you are with somebody who is a little bit emotionally shut off and thinks that's just normal, this is how it should be, but the other person feels, I actually need the, the closeness. And it hasn't been formulated that that's what we want to learn, that uh, there needs to be actually also a value being held in the relationship for emotional intelligence and learning and uh, um, uh, developing emotional literacy for one another and empathy. If that's not being formulated, then there's no way of actually resolving the conflict. Then, and and so I think it's important to make these processes conscious. Mm-hmm. Which then brings us. Let's look at the how do we unite, I guess, spirituality and maybe psychology, right, or psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So if we bring all of this together, and we look at the mind and the consciousness, right, and we coming from the understanding that, okay, we are a spiritual being having a human experience and we're trying mm-hmm. to learn the best we possibly can yeah. in the world that we have, right? Mm-hmm. And figure out who we are, why we're here and what is the best place for us in this world. Uh, because you have this beautiful variety of experiences through your life when you kind of looked at everything. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean that, and you also were like, a, what you said in, in like 60s, 70s, right? I mean, the time when the world was really going crazy about all everything around spirituality and personal development in all directions. Mm-hmm. So uh, you really had this direct experience of this and then you, you learned your lesson, you, you draw some conclusions, this is works, this it doesn't work, right? This could be done maybe in a different way if you want to have the same outcome. So, and over the years, it brought you to Hoffman and what you're doing right now. But then also, let's maybe just give people an understanding. How do you see consciousness and mind and spirituality in our life? Like, what can you personally say about it? Yeah, that's, a, that's a big question, yeah. I know, right? I told you, you're going to be on fire here. Personally, I think it's relatively simple. Mm-hmm. And I like to refer back to one of the concepts from the Hoffman process, where, which is the quadrinity uh, model. You, you're familiar with that. But so tell, please look, tell people, right? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> when we look at four aspects of the self, which is the emotional self, the intellect. So the emotional self stands for our feelings. The intellect stands for our thought patterns. Then there's the physical self, which is our body. And then there is also the what we call the spiritual self, or the old days you could say the witness position or the position of mindfulness or essence or just simply being. And the way we look at it, that is basically the basis of our consciousness. Now, consciousness also gets obviously identified when we're born with the body. And um, 
And also as we develop as a child, first of all, we are very much in our emotions. We haven't really developed our intellect yet. And depending on how our emotional child is being held by their environment, because we're so dependent on our caregivers when we are little, that we need to have actually caregivers that have a certain level of emotional maturity or the ability to regulate their own emotional stress so they can be present to the child needs. So if the child is sad, the caregiver needs to say, look, you're, it appears that you're a bit sad. So maybe, maybe you need a cuddle. So we learn later on in life that it's okay for us to, to assert our, our needs for, for closeness or for vulnerability. Or when we're as a child a bit startled or anxious, the or caregivers need to be able to recognize and say, oh, look, you look startled. Did anything happen? So we then also learn later on in life that we can ask for help when we are faced with a situation that's too difficult for us to handle. And also we need caregivers that can recognize our own interests and basically say, wow, you're fantastic the way you play in the mud. So we learn as a child later on, it's okay for me to follow my own interests, my own creativity without having to think about whether other people will approve of it. Mm -hmm. So if there is a good enough bonding with the caregivers, we develop what I call on an emotional level, a solid sense of self, where we have an innate sense of belonging. If it doesn't happen, and I think that's what, what I, what I call is one of the first shock points, because our consciousness is very, very egocentrically organized when we're little. The world, the world revolves around the child. So if there's a breakdown on the flow of love from caregivers to the child and from the child back, then the child has no other chance but to actually more unconsciously say, the way I am is not enough. I have to be more than what I am. So if maybe I'll be like my mom or like my dad or behave in a manner that will create some safety, some connectivity here. That's who I then will become. And so we then develop what I call the conditioned personality. And so that then later on gets played out in an inner conflict between the emotional child and the intellect where the intellect functions as the as the strategist to protect the child's wound that has not been appropriately resolved when we were little. So for example, you have maybe somebody who where a parent is too busy all the time, on the phone all the time. So there's not enough mirroring there for the child. And so the child after a while realized, well, there's no point in me crying. I'll just shut down. Because mm -hmm. I must feel, I must be unlovable. I may not be important enough to warrant the attention from my parents. And so that sits as a wound there. And then the intellect comes in and you, that person gets, grows up and becomes an adult, then goes to a party. And there is a person there who says, hello, Jana, can I give you a, offer you a drink? And because you're unused to that level of offering, the intellect steps in, don't don't go close to this. This is a creep. Well, when I was 17, I think I definitely can relate to that. <laughs> Don't talk to strange men at the bar. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> but if there were then a person who basically sits there, looks at you, then looks away, smokes a little cigarettes, a little bit and not so attentive, not so, not so attentive, then the emotional side, wow. That's just like my mother or my father would could never get attention. That's the person I really need to actually get 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 involved with because maybe finally I can resolve this 
unresolved breakdown. Which then leads to these codependent relationships, right? Yeah. Which, which we're talking about the relationship. It's mm-hmm. also people often get into this with those projections. So what would be your advice? <laughs> to those who uh, recognize, right, that they are in that state. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to go too much yet into how that impacts them later on relationships. But what we can't notice in that moment, coming back to your original question about consciousness and uh, and psychology. So that's where our consciousness gets trapped in the past. So where we either concerned about aspect that happened in the past, uh, will he love me? Or uh, uh, I, I had further experience uh, before where there was somebody too attentive and, and he was too much of a narcissist. So we're then constantly going either in the future or in the past, but we're not fully present. And so that's, I think, where psychology or psychospiritual healing is becoming very important because we need to, on one level, resolve that inner conflict between thinking and feeling. So where we developed also uh, a more emotional self where we feel we are okay and 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 where we come back to the initial experience of of lovingness which we're born with and self-love in that sense and when the emotional child and the intellect stop their inner chatter then we're present and then consciousness auto- automatically descends Beautiful. I love it. And I remember, I remember from my own experience in the Hoffman process, right? So hmm. thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And how did you say that you said uh, psycho healing? No, you used this word for this. Uh, when psycho, you come, psycho-spiritual healing. Psycho-spiritual healing. Yes. I'm like, this is a beautiful word to describe it. So if we look from this perspective on the ego, right? And the structure of the mm-hmm. ego itself. What do we see? Well, I can talk a little bit about maybe the Enneagram because that's, yes. you know, because that is probably one of, the, I personally think it's one of the more sophisticated maps of our ego structures. And because it's very dynamic, it's not pathologizing, but it helps us to also understand the motivation of, of our ego. And, and, and the Enneagram and look, Hoffman and the Enneagram have a, have an old um, history with each other. So because Claudio Noranco, I'm not quite sure whether you're familiar with him, but he was the, the he was a Chilean psychiatrist, also a friend of Bob Hoffman. And he was also the main person who brought the, the Enneagram back into, into our, in, into the, into the psychotherapy world, into the human, de- uh, human development. Mm-hmm movement in that sense you know and and so so he uh, claudio on one level was the one person that helped bob hoffman to develop the process the way it is actually being presented where bob at the beginning he worked more on a one-on-one level with people so but the group process the way it's being conducted and now that's more based on um, on 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 claudio norando's work and so also the pre-course work that we sent out for people to identify what their more negative pattern attachments are and so forth and tracing it back from which parent it actually we, we received these patterns from that also has the enneagram running in the background and the enneagram in that sense reflects on nine different aspects of the 
of the soul, if you like it. So, and, and the distortion as well of what happens when we're out of balance, when we're not really doing our inner, inner work, then our ego structure takes over. And what I love about the Enneagram in that sense, it describes nine distinct characters. And can we just look at them? <laughs> just in a very <laughs> short note, just say just just say to people what they are. So so because I'm not sure everyone is familiar with the Enneagram. I mean, I know it is very popular in some part of the world. I know mm -hmm. Asia it is popular and it is even used for business, right? So oh, it's yeah. not it's not only family and relationships and people actually use Enneagram for business. But uh, just maybe very briefly, right? So either what is the nine categories or maybe what is your, what is your biggest learning from the Enneagram? <laughs> you can well, choose which question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> so I can uh, maybe attempt a, a very brief synopsis, a synopsis of it. So we look at in the Enneagram at three major center where there's the gut center, there's the heart center, and then there's a head center. And now also science has recognized that there are obviously brain cells in our gut, in our heart, and also in our head. So even though it's an ancient, I think it gets traced back to the Desert Fathers in the third century. However, and it was used by all sorts of mystical orders in that sense. And nowadays it has a revival and where it's even used in business. Because on one level, it also really helps us to, and we use it at the Hoffman process, because I think it's good to have a bit of a diagnostic tool because it helps us to empathize more. So the gut center is and probably the, 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 the numbers don't mean so much, but it's the eight, the nine, and the one. The eight is more what we call the, the boss, or there are different, different um, labels for that in different uh, literatures. But basically, that's uh, a very instinctual person who basically comes from a place that they don't want to be weak. That's their main motivation. And it's always important to look at not the behavioral patterns, but at the motivation. That will determine a person's identification with the Enneagram. So you can see some people who might be pleasing, but they do it for different reasons. So some people will please because they want to be safe. Others may please because they want to love uh, or wants uh, somebody else to love them. There, some people want to please in order to be seen as special, and other pleases in order to become successful. So it looks, and other people please in order to have it harmonious. So coming back to the eight, that's the boss. They are usually not the kind of person who like to please too much. They are a lot of the time, a lot of CEOs, and some of the more unhealthy eights that we probably have seen would be. People like Kerry um, uh, Packer, uh, probably Donald Trump, um, Putin to some extent, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then there is the nine, and that's uh, that's also quite a quite a. Uh, they are solid people, the gut people. They have a lot of instinctual energies. It's not that they haven't got an intellect or a heart, but they trust their gut more. So the nine is the person who wants to have it peaceful at all costs. And so they seem to be more disassociated from, and, and some people say they they become a bit slothful in regards to their own self-inquiry. They can be quite workaholic, 
but they are usually people that, that feel a high level of responsibility for the whole field and they want them to be peaceful. And a lot of the time, even though um, the, uh, what we also say that we are born with a particular type, so it's also biologically ingrained, but there also are environmental issues that will make a difference there. So the nine usually comes from a family background where there was a lot of uh, probably strife that wasn't being healed and this little nine child then feels they, they're very highly sensitive and they feel I have to act in a particular way to make it safe here and so to, to have harmony here with everybody else. So then there's a one who basically, uh, they are the perfectionists. Still in the gut, they, right? Still in the gut. <laughs> Is it still correct? The gut. Right? Still in the yeah, gut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Still in the gut. And they basically recognize I will be okay if I do it all perfectly. So they're usually people where, who have an ability to make incredibly fine distinctions. So they see much more than other people where we might be walking in the botanical garden. They will be seeing all the different plants where they would be coming from. They will also see all the garbage that people have left behind and where something is out of order. Mm. So they are what we call the perfectionist. Then we're moving now to the heart center where there is the, the two, the three, and the four. And the two is basically the, they, they, they want to be loved and they need the way they get it is by making themselves very helpful to others. So indispensable. So they are the people who organize all the, all the, the children pick up. So they, they, they're the kind of person who says, look, what is it that you need? Let me talk to you about it. I can see you're not feeling quite well. So they, however, they overreach and they, suffer from a little bit of pride because they need to be the helper and they have an issue around just also having their own needs declared because they feel they are the ones who have to give it to others. The three is more the achiever. They want to basically, they have this mistaken love for achievement. So they're very driven and they are the kind of people who are very strongly in, in the corporate world. Because the corporate world loves these people because they have an ability to get things done. They're super organized and they have a knack to manifest. That's what the positive side is. The negative side of it, that they become very competitive and that they usually go from one achievement to the next. I have had uh, people who've actually had major international rewards and gotten into a depression because they thought, what now? Now I have to develop the next thing and I'm not quite sure whether I can. I'm already reaching the pinnacle and I'm only 30. <laughs> yeah, it happens very often in the society, indeed. Yes. Yeah. So, and then we have the four, which is, um, which is an interesting there. We have a lot of four artists and they're very, uh, like, for example, Edith Piaf, Leonard Cohn, those kind of people, um, Michael Hutchinson. They are, they are, they're very much into beauty, but they also have a need to be seen mm-hmm. and they suffer from a very deep abandonment wound, which they try to overcome by being special. But being special comes with a, with a disease of having to compare yourself. So you're always alone and it basically perpetuates that abandonment wound. Then you have the five who basically is usually they're very thoughtful people. They're quite thin skin and they have a sense that the world demands too much of them. So 
they feel they are whatever the world demands they haven't got it so they come from a deep place of deprivation and uh, the way they overcome it is through uh through studying for them knowledge is power so these are the classical nerds if you like it so we're uh, in the head already right we move yeah, to the this head is now center, moving right the yes. five, the six, and the seven moves <laughs> yes. into the head center mm-hmm. and they're also and there's fear in the head center right so and it has a lot to do with with authority or uh a bad relationship with authority particularly when people are more disintegrated in that sense so they feel that they they have to they have to hold their knowledge in they don't want to share too much because they feel no matter what they give it's never enough and it's sometimes in relationship it's sometimes really interesting because sometimes you get a five who partners up with the two and the two is all over them <laughs> they feel I can never fulfill the two's need and they they become very intrusive and I've had this one client couple client where he said who was a five and said look I feel that you have about a million dollars in your bank account in your emotional bank account and I personally feel I only have a dollar I'm happy to give you 50 cents you know <laughs> I understand <laughs> and moving on from that is the six which is basically they're the fearful people the classic one would be and there there are also subtypes i don't want to go too deeply into that but the uh, the six are very much their their negative passion is is fear so they're very fearful they have a very active uh, autonomic nervous system so they spike easily into anxiety in that sense so classic one would be woody allen you know he walks down the street and has a headache and he thinks oh my god it might be cancer I have to go to a doctor. But what if the doctor gives me a wrong diagnosis? Well, I go to another doctor. But what if that doctor is wrong or the first one was right? Well, then I have to go to the third one. <laughs> to be honest, it sounds like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Now we just found your Enneagram type. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so that's um and it's so they are the people who are just constantly doubting themselves. They also have a particular relationship with authority because fear is always based uh it's is always an emotion that comes up in regards to authority that there's somebody above us that will control us and so we have to be careful in regards to and, and vigilant in regards to how this authority operates so that's what the six will do they always look where's the authority mm-hmm. so we covered all nine centers right no the, the seven is the last one oh uh, i think it's you right the seven <laughs> is more something that i'm associated with yes <laughs> let's Oops. not forget that <laughs> let's not forget that yes yes um, and the, the sevens are more the people who are well they the, it's called the enthusiast they're all the generalist but what they do they become too identified well their main motivation is not wanting to be trapped usually they've had uh a quite a rigid parent and also two parents that usually probably didn't provide enough enough um holding function as a child but also where there was quite a lot of rigidity in the rules and so the seven child usually wants to get away from being trapped so and the way they do it is by going into what i call ego planning so where there's a plan a then there's a plan b then there's another plan b a and a plan b a b so so 
and 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 as you can see, there's not actually one aspect of the enneagram that's better than the other. Oh. It really depends on the level of integration that everybody has. And I think it's also beautiful to know that everyone has flaws. Everybody <laughs> so regardless of who you are, you will have something you have yeah. to work on, which I find very liberating, right? Because then it also removes a bit of this pressure to just be perfect all the time, which is, I would say, impossible for a human being as long as they have mm -hmm. a physical body. And it is just sometimes that, especially people who are again seekers, interpersonal development or spirituality or consciousness, they often have this pressure that they put on themselves that, okay, now I have to become 100% enlightened fully, never fully. have any all relapses the time, yes. all the time. And I'm being very vigilant about exactly. how I'm even putting forward my cup of tea in a mindful manner. Exactly, no. <laughs> right? Which is, yeah. which, is, which is impossible. I mean, it's a joke of itself, and then it becomes this another ego trap. And then mm. it's like we talk, we go from the material ego into the spiritual ego, which is a much more dangerous thing to be. However, I just want to like pause here a little bit with the Enneagram because it's also very important, right? We covered all the nine types, and mm -hmm. I know it because I, I have looked at it with you, so I probably should look at it again, <laughs> but that's an entirely different story. Um, but I think for people who have been listening, guys, usually what happens when someone starts uh, describing something like an Enneagram, and he'll listen to this, especially for the first time, you would feel instinctively a resonance with something, maybe one mm -hmm. or two types, right? Yeah. Like as Walker now has been saying, six is this, five is that, two is this. And then as you're listening to that, you would be, wow, that actually could have been me. And maybe these two, right? So you probably would have maybe one, two, maybe three types that you resonate to instinctively already after listening to that. So, which is wonderful. Now you can go and find people who can guide you further yeah, <laughs> on yeah. how you can discover that, right? I mean, definitely Volker is one of them. And uh, I think it's just also, just as Hoffman process, it's also a very powerful tool to understand yourself from different dimensions, which is important. Question for you, Volker. It's kind of actually a joke. Not really a question, but it's a joke. I'm not sure if okay, you know well, it. I'm always okay? up for jokes. Yes. Good. Okay, so there's this joke that it's about a conscious parenting. And the reason why I'm asking is actually because I know that Hoffman was largely designed actually for people who wanted to be parents so they can be better parents to their children, right? Mm -hmm. And so here's the joke. So regardless what you do for your child and how much you want to be an ideal, conscious, amazing parent, your son or daughter will always have something to talk about with his or her therapist. Okay, so that's that's kind of just removing pressure now from all parents. That's exactly <laughs> what I like. Right? Like, like Bob Hoffman always used to say, the Hoffman process is, is only good for people who had a mother and a father. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Which is probably a little glib because there's, I think there's, it's, it, we, we obviously do much more stringent scanning and, 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 and making sure that it's the right time for a person to actually come and attend. But, uh, but I think what you're alluding to, Jana, is basically saying that, uh, there's no such thing as a perfect parent and good enough parenting is good enough. Yes. And I think particularly now, it's really, say it again to people who are listening, you know, mm -hmm. and I feel, and I'm not, I mean, I, I'm a stepmom, 
right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. it's like I'm not a, a woman who is like a, a typical mother figure when it comes to the family. However, I know many women and there is this whole movement now about the conscious parenting that goes in many cultures all over the world where women now try to be a superheroes. I mean, of course, it's also for fathers, but I feel for women right now a little bit more pressure because they try to pack it all in. So it's like this ideal, the superwoman idea where it's not only a you know, have a job and be successful and do what you love and make money and be sexy at home for your husband. And then also be like a super perfect mom who is always on top and not tiger mom. So give enough space to your children, right? And it kind of goes on and on. And then it's for your fulfillment and your own spiritual development. And finally, your enlightenment all in one lifetime. So, and so that, what I at least see, especially people who live like in, in the cities and the big cities in the modern world, it just seems to be a big topic. So, so maybe just a little bit about parenting and how people can just relax this in their mind and understand that, I mean, you cannot possibly be an ideal perfect parent all the time, right? So then no. what can you do? <laughs> no, I, I do think that there's a, a, quite a lot of misconceptions around it, uh, particularly if we develop an idealistic image, how we ought to function. And that moment, if you come back to the quadrinity model, the emotional child basically feels, I'm feeling inadequate, and the intellect goes, yes, you are. Let me come up. I'll go and Google everything that a child needs. I'm going to do all the right kind of courses. I know all the, the, um, the book knowledge, and I'll push you into that so you are the perfect mother. So and the emotional child feels, okay, that's great, and then feels, however, more and more stressed, and the intellect goes, you shouldn't be so stressed. And uh, you're a bad mother because of that. And the emotional gets more stressed. And so they'll keep it all under wraps. Don't complain. Uh, maybe we can do some more Pilates and that should do it, the trick. And then it goes backwards and forwards, right? So that doesn't really work. What's really interesting is to, to also understand the way we develop a solid sense of self is not through the perfect empathic attunement. It actually comes about through what self-psychologists would call optimal frustration. Mm-hmm. So when there is a breakdown, an interpersonal breakdown, that's not traumatic. It can be a little bit traumatic to some extent, but that's then being repaired. So the child will realize, okay, there's frustration. I may not get the iPad right now, but I'm still loved. Or my mom basically says, no, you have to go to bed. It's seven o'clock now. And children your age are to bed. I know you don't like it. And I still love you. And I know you're angry with me. And that's okay. And you still have to go to bed. So there's still an openness then in that moment in the heart connection. No, it's not a, a stressed out, rageful, go to bed now. But there's, however, a firm boundary being set. And, and the child in that sense, starts to surrender and realize, okay, I can be frustrated, but it can also be repaired. And so it creates a sense of confidence within the self that we can be resilient. And so it's actually, as I said, it's uh, the breakdowns and the repair of the breakdowns is the essence. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, as we are um coming towards the end of our interview, I think, because I'm looking mm-hmm. at the timing and we're coming towards the hour already. Another question for you. After everything we have discussed today, mm-hmm. and I know that this particular interview is at least the way how it's done here. It's, it's like, 
it's everything at once, right? Everything is thrown at you at once. Okay. And okay. you have to you have to react to this really quickly. And it's like, okay, we talk about this and that and that. Mm-hmm. So uh being a very intelligent person, Volker, which you are. So now when you process what we have discussed today in our interview for you personally, what was your highlight when it comes to sharing? What did you enjoy the most and why? Hmm, that's a good question. I think what I actually enjoyed sharing the most was actually my my own story around Osho, yeah. even though it is not something that I have freely talked about in public. <laughs> but it was a very seminal time, and I appreciate you asking about it because it was a it was a time where which was quite dramatic. There was enormous amount of excitement there, and also it was it was an initiatory period for me where it became it set me up to get clarity about the direction I want to take in my life not necessarily through Osho's teaching to some extent that was there but more about recognizing that I need to find myself mm. as what I said do not look at the finger look at the moon and I think that's an important part and to, for us to be able to to develop also coming up us talking about the moon, uh, developing a, a relationship with the natural world. And I think that's probably the one thing that's closest to my heart these days, because I'm also an avid environmentalist. And I do see what's happening on the planet and also the whole instinction crisis that we're actually present to right now. I mean, the amount of animals that we've lost just here in Australia in the last year, the year before, was just staggering and we see that it hasn't come better it hasn't be- become better on the planet and this is just australia so i think there is a for humanity there's an element where we have forgotten to be loved by us by nature personally i think that a few thousand years ago somebody's husband or brother got eaten by a sable-toothed tiger and they haven't forgiven and nature and it just progressed since then where we feel we need to control nature and we have to oppress it and and direct it and control it rather than actually create a more symbiotic relationship and humanity i think on one level is depending on developing a more symbiotic relationship with uh, with with nature so where we realize we all live in a context and i think i personally feel so privilege that i had the freedom to really explore that i didn't have to worry in my life that much about money that somehow was always manifested in some way or another and i could dedicate myself to to understanding a much deeper level of connectivity with myself but also with the natural world and humans are part of that but we need to actually widen out and uh, So in that sense when we look at the moon we need to develop to to experience love coming from the moon with these beautiful words and energy i would like to thank you for joining us today uh it feels very moving and touching and deeply connected to the moon and mm-hmm. love and the nature as you have been sharing all of this mm-hmm. and thank you for being so open honest authentic 
and brave <laughs> to show all aspects of yourself, not only the professional side that many people know, but also the, the inner walker that mm -hmm. doesn't often come out into the world. So I definitely enjoyed to see you in your totality. So mm, thank you for being thank here you. today. Thank you, Jana. Lovely. Beautiful. It's been a delight being interviewed by you. Thank you. Wow, we covered so much during this one-hour conversation with Volker. Did you enjoy the interview? Feel free to share this episode with friends, subscribe to the podcast, and consider to support us on Patreon. Stay wild and be humble. До встречи!